afternoon, everyone. It's very good to see you. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to Daniel chapter 4. We're going to read or sit with our reading from chapter 4. It was a long one, just like last week. We are now third of four times together that we're going to sit with this book. Next week, we will wrap it up. And today we're in chapter 4, and we started in verse 24, but it's kind of a confusing place to jump in. And so I want to give you just a little bit of context, and then we'll see what it might mean for us today. Chapter 4, really the whole of the chapter has all these echoes of other parts of the Old Testament. It's where we see King Nebuchadnezzar having this vivid dream. None of his wise men know what to do about it. They don't know what it means. They don't know how to interpret it. And so they call in the Israelites. They call in Daniel to bring the interpretation, to come and make sense of it. And his dream, his vision, centers around a tree. Almost the entire chapter, you could say, really centers on a tree. This great, strong tree that grew to the heavens and gave shade and food to everyone around it. And then in the vision, a decree comes to have the tree cut down, leaving just a root, just a stump, really. So that, as you see in verse 17, it says, All who live may know that the Most High is sovereign, Over the kingdoms of mortals, he gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of human beings. Daniel then very boldly, you could say, speaks truth to power with a little bit of fear and trembling. He says, it's you, king. You're the tree. And if you don't change and repent of your ways like this tree in your vision, you will be cut down to a stump. So repent so this doesn't happen to you. And what's interesting is we're actually told in the reading how Nebuchadnezzar responds. Does he get angry? Does he laugh it off? Does he think, what in the world did I eat for dinner that made me have such weird dreams? Like We don't actually know. Yet what we do know from his actions is that Nebuchadnezzar clearly did not heed the advice at the most basic level, because by his actions, uh, he doesn't take it to heart in any meaningful sense. And so if you pick it up in verse 30, which we did read, you see him walking around the roofs of the palace. And he says, is this not magnificent Babylon, which I have built as a royal capital by my mighty power and for my glorious majesty? So clearly he kept on with his ways, doing what he did. And then as the story goes, it unfolds just as was predicted. He's driven out into the wilderness. He eats grass like oxen. His hair grew as long as eagle's feathers. His nails like bird's claws. His body was bathed with the dew of heaven, which if I'm honest, that kind of sounds like a pleasant thing. Like, I don't know what that is, but you would assume the dew of heaven is not the worst. But in the context, eating like an oxen and nails like eagle claws, we're going to just say somehow that was also not to be terribly desired. So uh, not super desirable place for this king. And yet from that place, the story ends with him almost like the prodigal son coming to his senses, remembering the vision, remembering the words that were spoken over him. And in verse 34, we see that Nebuchadnezzar lifts his eyes to heaven and his reason is restored. And he goes away praising God and acknowledging God's rule and reign over the earth. That's kind of the two-minute summary of a very long and dense chapter. You may have some nominal familiarity with this story. If you grew up in church, maybe this kind of feels like a distant Sunday school story, which maybe helps a little bit. But if we're being honest, wherever you're coming from with this, it's a weird reading. 
Like, this is a weird story that's not immediately clear. How in the world does this in any way make sense to us for our lives this week? How do we possibly move through this? And so what I want to do is actually, as I set with it, I think this is a really good example, case study, you could say, on how to read the Bible well how to read the Bible faithfully. And that's really my primary goal, is to help us understand the story, but even perhaps more holistically, to help us know how to be faithful students of the scriptures and see the Bible not just as Sunday school stories for flannel graphs, but actually this beautiful, cohesive narrative from the very beginning to the very end, how it all ties together. Because it has a beautiful internal cohesion to it. So, before we get all the way into that, really what I want us to see a way into this story thematically for us is the theme of autonomy. We, I think as human beings, are absolutely convinced of our own need for autonomy. We believe that we as humans can go it alone. Not just that we can, but we're probably better off on our own. We don't need anyone to help us. We can just set off on our own, and the sooner it happens, the better. I was thinking this week and remembered, true story, when I was about nine years old, I decided I was going to run away from home. I had nothing, thankfully, uh, in my life that I needed to run away from. I lived the most bland, suburban, Cobb County childhood you could possibly imagine. And yet, I'd seen it on a cartoon or something, so I thought, it's about time to run away. It's like a thing we do. And so I'd also seen, you know, the way you run away is you take the uh, brush off the end of your your broom, and you take the stick, and you tie like a handkerchief around the end and put all your valuables in it, which when you're nine years old was like Hot Wheels cars and Legos. And so I loaded it up, tied it up, put it on my shoulder, and now I was really ready to go. You've seen this. You know what I'm talking about. My brother, who was about five at the time, I distinctly remember him like weeping, like, don't go from the front porch. Like a very poetic scene. And as I'm walking up our suburban street, I made it about four houses to where I had to either turn left or right to actually leave our street. And I thought, these Legos aren't going to get me very far. And so stood there for a minute, swallowed my pride and came home. My brother like, you know, ran to greet me. It was like a prodigal brother moment. <laughs> um, it was really beautiful. And so I never ran away again. However, it did, I'd say, like started this quest for autonomy, this quest for um, growing up, frankly, as quick as I could so that I could be my own self-made man. When I was 14, got my first job at Chick-fil-A because they were the only place around town that let children work. They were like really into child labor. And so <laughs> they were cool with that. So on, off we went. I finished college in two and a half years, got married when I was 20. Like I've always been rushing to become an adult. And I think somewhere in there, God got a hold of me and like showed me this is a pattern of autonomy. This is a pattern of believing the world is centered around you. And the quicker you can get to a place where you can build a life centered around you, the better. And the details of my life may be unique to me, but you have your own version of this because that's just what it means to be human. To be a human being is to embrace at some level This reality that we long for autonomy. We long to have a world that centers around us. I introduced these themes a few weeks ago, and it's worth bringing up again. The the two ideas of theodrama versus egodrama. It's really helpful. If you weren't here, just this basic idea where theologians say, God's story is a theodrama. God's story. Theos. He is at the center. And the world revolves around him. And the sooner that we see that, the sooner we live into that, the better. Except the problem is we live in ego drama where our lives and our ego is meant to be the center of the story. And 
King Nebuchadnezzar is like the ultimate example of someone living an ego drama. That's really the point of Daniel chapter 4. It's this poetic story that says, case in point, here's the ego drama of all ego dramas, and here's where that story leads you. That's kind of the moral of this story. Here's where that path is headed. And if you stay on it, just like Nebuchadnezzar, this is what you will become. Verse 26 and 32, twice they say this. He's driven out into isolation until, until it says, you have learned that the Most High has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals and gives it to whom he will. And what's interesting is the way the story ends, Nebuchadnezzar realizes this. And when he gets it right, it's like he finds his purpose. You see God's love for Nebuchadnezzar, even the oppressor of his people. The oppressive king, God still has a redemptive imagination for. And it says he, his reason is returned to him in verse 36. It's like God gives us our true selves back. When we step out of the center and let it center around him and we find our place there, he gives us the gift of our reason. Because to build a world around ourselves is quite literally insanity. That's what they're trying to say. Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind, lives like a wild animal. Because that's the end game of building a world where we're at the center. God reminds us that it is in him that we live and move and have our being. And I think actually wants us to free, to be freed from this. Because there's a crushing burden from living an ego drama. I think we can all relate to that. There's this just a, a weight that comes from having to carry that kind of autonomy, that kind of quest for power. So like I said at the very beginning, this story really does make sense of all this through the lens of a tree. And so like settle in, have a sip of your coffee, focus in. We're going to talk about trees for a long time now. Uh, And I have a few things I want to say about trees. And I'm going to really stick to my notes, actually, because I'm going to try and weave a very specific narrative from the very beginning of the Bible to the end. And we've got like 12 minutes to do it. So we're going to we're going to move quickly. But track with me, because I think this is really significant. Nebuchadnezzar, we're told, is the tree. He's the tree that is at the center of it all. The world revolves around him. As the tree, the world comes to him for food, for safety, for provision. Yet, like I just said, it's an impossible weight to bear. And no matter how hard he pushes against it, no matter how hard we push against it, we will eventually crush under that weight. We will be reduced to a stump. That's what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. He's reduced to a stump. And I think it's hard sometimes to get our head around the fact that God is the one actively and intentionally doing that reduction. Like in this story, God intervenes to reduce Nebuchadnezzar to a stump. And if I'm honest with you, for much of my life, I think I had a view of God that lived with this kind of constant fear that said, are you at any given moment going to reduce me to a stump? Do you view me in such a way where I kind of had this sense in which if I make one wrong step, God's there just waiting to reduce me and let me know what he really thinks about me. Because I think that's the fear. It's fear that's rooted in this fundamental belief that God is displeased with me. Not that he looks at me and is loving and sees me fundamentally with a posture of love, but one of displeasure and persistent anger. One of the things I want us to see from Daniel 4 is that God's fundamental posture towards his creation is one of love. From the very beginning to the very end of the Bible, the story of salvation is God loved the world and therefore sent his son. 
Verse 26 is fascinating to me. Nebuchadnezzar is the oppressor of God's people. You can think the ancient Israelites are reading this story, writing this story, telling this story, uh, how much they would have longed for some kind of justice, for Nebuchadnezzar to be brought to like a burning ash heap. Like that's what that guy deserves. And yet 26 says, your kingdom will be reestablished for you from the time that you learn that heaven is sovereign. Even as God reduces Nebuchadnezzar to a stump, there's still this vision held out that God will restore his kingdom to him. That there's this vision of restoration, of recreation, of being rebuilt. I think God knew that the most unloving thing ultimately he could do for Nebuchadnezzar is to let him keep going in the way he's going, to let him keep building the tree that he's continually building because we know where that leads to believe that he's a tree that's at the center of it all. And so what God does is he's reestablishing creation as it's meant to be, but with a new trajectory. Part of cutting it back is so that something can grow again with a new direction, a new trajectory. Now, as a theodrama, with God at the center, with God as the tree, not Nebuchadnezzar, but God as the tree, which brings life and goodness and hope to the world. That restoration begins, it says, when Nebuchadnezzar learns that heaven is king. What's interesting is if you start your Bible in Genesis, it begins in a garden. Genesis has a picture of life as God intends, creation as God intended it to be. And what's at the very center of the garden? A tree. A tree that is symbolic of the very presence of God, of wisdom and of knowledge, and everything in the garden centers around this tree. It's not Adam, it's not Eve, it's not the kingdoms they build or the names that they would want to make for themselves, but it is a tree that represents God's very presence. And yet, what does the story tell us? From the very beginning, we as human beings see that tree and see it as a threat to our power, as a threat to our autonomy, and so they go about trying to cut the tree down try to take its fruit by force. That's the story of Adam and Eve. They try and take by force what God wants to ultimately give to us as a gift. Yet you can't take a gift by force. And so God is grieved by the free use of the freedom that he gave to his creation. And yet what does he do? Does he pack up bags and like, like forget the whole project? Like, oh, that was a mistake. You know, wipe the slate clean and start anew? No. Even in their shame, even in the scandal of what they've done, God draws near to them. And he walks in the garden, we're told. He tries to draw near to them to begin a work of restoration. And so Adam and Eve's exile from the garden is not born out of God's hatred for them, but it is the beginning of their restoration. That is the the heart of the Genesis story. Even in our failure as human beings, God begins a work of love. God begins a restorative work, bringing them back to what he wants them to be. We're only two weeks away now from Advent. Advent begins in just two weeks' time. In some ways, Advent is the season of waiting, the season of believing that God will finish what he started in the garden, that the healing that he began finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus, again, walking with us, just like in the garden. God drawing near to us in our frailty and in our weakness. That's the story of the incarnation. God draws near to us and walks with us again. 
One of the greatest readings that we read in Advent is from the Old Testament, Isaiah 11, verse 1. And since we missed like most of Advent as a church, I'm just going to give you a, like a bonus Advent sermon. Uh, Isaiah 11 says this, A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. The church has always read Isaiah 11 as Jesus being the shoot. Jesus being what is born out of the ashes of Israel. All of their hopes, all of their dreams, all of their failures to live into the promises that they made to God and him, he to them, summarized in this idea of a stump of Jesse. And yet Isaiah looks ahead and he says, new life will come from that stump. He says, I can bring forth new life. And the reason we read it in Advent is because the shoot that springs forth is Jesus Christ, God with us. And in a similar way to the very garden itself with the tree at the center, when Jesus says, I am the life of the world, he himself is the new tree that the world will now come around and find safety and refuge and hope and food, not Nebuchadnezzar, but Jesus, which is why our Bible ends in Revelation 22 with these words. Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. God wants to heal his creation. That's what Jesus comes to do, to heal that which is broken. The church has fundamentally throughout history been called a hospital, that we come as sick people looking for healing, looking for the hope in our brokenness and in the, the effects of sin on our lives. And Jesus is that tree, that therapeutic tree of life. And where Nebuchadnezzar misses it, where we miss it, where Israel misses it, Jesus stands resurrected, full of glory for us to come and find our life again, to come and recenter our story around him. And so I actually close with a, a final Advent Christmassy line. One of my favorite, absolute favorite Christmas hymns is called Jesus Christ, the Apple Tree, which if you've ever heard it, or if you haven't heard it and you hear that line, you think that is a silly hymn. <laughs> Most of my family, whenever I've told them about this hymn, they kind of scratch their heads and think, what in the world are you talking about? But I think the person who wrote this hymn, it's a good English Anglican hymn, I think they had this beautiful vision of the way in which a tree is found from the very beginning to the very end of scripture, from the garden to new creation to Jesus' incarnation, to Nebuchadnezzar, everywhere in between. They had this idea, this vision that says, Jesus Christ is the tree, the apple tree in the garden that we tried to take by force. Now in Jesus is given to us as a gift for our healing, to heal the weariness in our bones. And so in passing, I told Sindhu that I wanted to read these words and she lit up and she said, we're singing this for lessons and carols. And so as a shameless plug, you should also come to lessons and carols where you will hear this more beautifully sung, far more beautifully sung than I could ever read. But maybe as a, a very poor imitation of what you'll hear as a closing reflection, I want to read these words for us. Uh, we have them on the screen Read these meditatively with me, prayerfully with me, because in a far shorter and more beautiful and poetic way, I think this is the heart of what I'm trying to say from Daniel 4 today. The tree of life my soul hath seen, 
laden with fruit and always green. The trees of nature fruitless be compared with Christ the apple tree. His beauty doth all things excel. By faith I know, but ne'er can tell. The glory which I now can see in Jesus Christ the apple tree. For happiness I long have sought and pleasures dearly I have bought. I missed of all, but now I see tis found in Christ the apple tree. I'm weary with my former toil. Here I will sit and rest a while. Under the shadow I will be of Jesus Christ, the apple tree. This fruit doth make my soul to thrive. It keeps my dying faith alive. Which makes my soul in haste to be with Jesus Christ, the apple tree. Lord Jesus, we your people are weary feel the weariness and the burden of sin, the ways in which we quest after our autonomy and our power and believe that we need no one but ourselves to be fulfilled and to flourish and to be happy and joyful. And yet, as this song so beautifully reminds us, we seek And we purchase and we toil all the while simply wanting the rest that you give. So Lord, as we approach Advent, remind us that you, Jesus Christ, you are the tree of life. And you do not withhold your love from us, but you give the rest that we so desperately need. So free us from taking it by force by believing lies that say it's a fruit that can only be taken when we take it by force and help us to trust that you are good and that you love us. That you long to restore us, to return us to ourselves. Lord, be near to us this week, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. As you're able, would you stand? Thank you so much for listening to today's sermon. My name is Trip Prince, and I'm the parish pastor here at Trinity on the north side. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people growing into Christ's likeness. You can learn more about Trinity and get plugged into the life of the church by visiting us online at atltrinity.org. God bless you and have a great week.